You are listening to the Sermons Podcast from the North Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. For more gospel-focused resources or information about our church, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com. This morning's sermon text can be found in Matthew chapter 8, sorry, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Again, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. And if you'd like to follow along on one of the blue Bibles that's in one of the seats in front of you, you can find that on page 835. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Well, after those baptism testimonies, I just feel like I should send you all home. But let me join my voice with the others that... Uh, welcome you here on this Easter Sunday in celebration of no other event than the resurrection of Christ. We're glad you're here this morning. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Matthew 28 and then join me as we pray. Father, we have sung of the resurrection We have seen symbols of the resurrection, and now as we look at your word, open our eyes and cause fresh wonder, fresh awe, fresh joy to rise in our hearts to see the beauty and the majesty of the resurrection afresh. Do this for the exaltation of the name and for the fame of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Do you ever have just one of those weeks? A week where the sorrow and the grief of life just feel heavier than usual. Yesterday I was at a funeral. This week I visited a man in hospice who is in his 20s. There's just something deeply unnatural about visiting someone that young who is dying before your eyes. It was one of those weeks where I heard about the sin in someone's life that just wreaks havoc 
and just touches multiple families in such a way that life trajectories are changed forever. I know here even this morning, for some of you, this is the very first Easter you have celebrated without a dear loved one. Or perhaps for others of us, we know that it will be the last Easter that we will celebrate with a dear loved one. It's a week where the world has seemingly lost its collective mind a little bit more each day, where the violence seems to creep in a little closer and closer and just hopelessness seems to linger over our lives like the fog that will not lift. So many seem fearful of the future. I wonder if any of you can relate here this morning. And yet here we are on Easter. You guys are all dressed up and looking nice. The highest of holidays for the Christian faith. Does the resurrection have anything to do with our present sorrows and our present suffering and our present sadness? Let me put it this way. Is the resurrection just a coat of primer over the black mold that's growing up the basement walls, just delaying the inevitable death that is surely to come? Or is the resurrection somehow different? Does it somehow transform everything in life so that it's never the same? That's what I want to explore together this morning. The story of the resurrection, does it have present and future significance for us? So I want to ask two main questions. What happened in the resurrection? And look at that story once again, which you just heard read. And then what does it mean for us? So what happened in the resurrection? And then what does it mean for us? What are the implications of what happened on that night, on that day 2,000 years ago. So before we look at the passage that was read for us, let me just set the stage and the events that led up to Jesus' resurrection again. A lot happened in that final week of Jesus' life, and I just want to guide us through that once again. So the Sunday before the crucifixion, he enters Jerusalem riding in on a donkey in order to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. And the crowds are crying out, Hosanna in the highest and waving their palm branches. And this is the triumphal entry. Jesus is going into the city where he will die. That evening he returns to Bethany. On Monday, Jesus goes back into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple where he sees the money changers and he flips over their tables. And the chief priests and the scribes are indignant because of all the attention that is coming to Jesus. And they begin to scheme and plan for his death. Then on Tuesday, Jesus goes up into the temple once again and he has a confrontation with the chief priests and the elders and they look at him and they say, who gave you the authority to do all these things? Because he was healing in their midst. And he doesn't tell them. They challenge his authority. Meanwhile, Jesus is telling parable after parable to say, you guys are missing the very son of God who has come. The long-awaited Messiah, you're missing him. I'm right here. And they miss him again and again. And he, he denounces their hypocrisy. He leaves the temple. He goes up on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And, and he teaches them about the coming kingdom. This is the last day that Jesus will teach publicly. Then on Wednesday, 
Jesus stays in Bethany. He's at the house of Simon the leper. He's reclined at the table with Lazarus. Martha is helping serve the meal. Mary comes over with the resurrection of Lazarus fresh on her mind. With such great love in her heart, she takes the family heirloom. Alabaster jar of ointment, breaks it open, pours it all over Jesus' head, runs down his beard, down his neck. She takes her hair, her glory, and washes Jesus' feet. It's a lavish and stunning display of worship. And Jesus says, I want you to all see this. Don't miss this. And what does he say? Not that she just loved much. He says, she's preparing me for my burial. On Thursday, the disciples go off to a upper room to prepare the Passover. And as they enjoy the meal, Jesus does another stunning thing. He takes off his outer garment, puts on a towel, gets down on his knees like a common servant and washes their feet. Then he takes bread and wine and he endows it with whole new meaning. This is the Passover they're observing. They should be talking about the Exodus and what does he do and said? He says, the bread, it's my body broken for you. The cup, it's the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And there, that night, they depart and they go to Gethsemane and they pray. At midnight, Jesus is betrayed and then arrested. Under the cover of darkness, he is tried by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders. The charge of blasphemy is thrown out. He's condemned to death. By sunrise, Peter has already denied him three times. All of his disciples are scattered. Pilate is given, Jesus is given over to Pilate, sentenced to death, and he's crucified by morning. Two criminals at his side all three of them suffocating to death. Jesus dies at 3 p.m. His body that evening is taken down, placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, disciple of Jesus. A great stone is rolled in front of the tomb. Soldiers are set on guard. The tomb is sealed. On Saturday, Jesus' body is in the tomb during the Sabbath, under watch by Roman guards. And now we come to Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So what happened in the resurrection of Jesus? First, we see overwhelming grief 
and sadness. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, likely the mother of James, went to the tomb overwhelmed with sadness. It's like if you've just lost a loved one, you know what it's like to swing by cub and grab some flowers and then to go to the cemetery in order to just be close to the tomb. Just to spend a moment there with your deceased loved one. In Mark's gospel, we're told they brought spices to help preserve the body. Their souls are weighed down with sorrow and grief upon grief. But the angel shows up and their grief turns to shock and awe. The ground begins to shake. And this is not the first earthquake that they have experienced. But there was an earthquake when Jesus died. The curtain keeping the Holy of Holies in the temple was torn top to bottom. Rocks split open. And now another earthquake. And the women are wondering, what now? What does this mean? And lo and behold, the angel sits on the stone, gleaming like lightning, white as snow. And the women know they're not hallucinating because the guards that were to stand guard are fallen down like dead men. Notice the irony here. Those assigned to guard the dead now appear dead. And the dead are now alive. The soldiers easily could have turned anyone away who had come to steal the body. But here in this moment, they pass out. They faint. They're paralyzed because they have seen the glory of these angels. And the first thing the angel says to the woman is, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. And then notice what he says. Come and see the place where he lay. The angel invites the woman into the tomb to see for themselves. He doesn't say, just take my word for it. He says, come in and see. Come into the tomb. Make sure he's not kind of hiding around the corner. Come, see where he lay. Come, see the linen cloths that wrapped his body. Look around to make sure he isn't here. Here in this moment, they're not told, shut off your senses and just take it by faith, but come and see and search and know without a shadow of doubt that his body is not here. What happened in the resurrection? The resurrection is an invitation to all of us to come and see the glory of God. The scriptures are written, this account in Matthew 28 and in all of the gospels are written in such a way that we can verify these facts. Come and see how God's people lived in light of the resurrection. Come and see how the disciples responded to this good news. Come and see how this singular event changed and transformed all of human history. Come and see how we're still talking about, still celebrating this glorious event 2,000 years later. Come and see the hope that flows from the resurrection. Charles Coulson says this about the truthfulness of the resurrection. Some of you have heard this before. He said, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. 
Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten and tortured and stoned and put in prison. And they would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate, on the other hand, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Notice that the stone is rolled away, not so that Jesus could come out, because Jesus could pass through walls, but this was so that the woman could go in and see the empty tomb. The words, he is risen from the dead, are this divine passive. God, the Father, has raised Jesus from the dead. Now, did you notice the mild rebuke that the, ish, that the angel issued? He says, he's not here, for he has written as he said. He's saying, don't you guys remember Don't you guys recall all the times Jesus told you in advance that he wasn't going to be here? Did you forget so quickly? And we all are wondering, well, when did Jesus tell them? Well, let me highlight three places. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Same account is recorded in Mark 8 and Luke 9. And then again, Matthew 17, one chapter later, verses 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And that account is recorded in Mark 9 and Luke 9. And then again in Matthew verse, chapter 20, verse 17 to 19, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, We're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. That's recorded in Mark 10 and Luke 18. Three different times Jesus tells them, not in parables, not in code, as plain as can be, I'm going to be crucified I'm going to be raised on the third day. And they miss it. They miss it. The disciples didn't understand. I wonder if these women, as soon as the angel said, as he said, get a light bulb in their mind of, oh, he did say that, didn't he? He isn't going to be here, is he? These two women are the very first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and of the risen Christ. And in those days, in the first century, women could not serve as eyewitnesses in a legal setting. And in all the gospel accounts, women are the first to discover the empty tomb and to encounter the risen Christ. And this is often cited to show the historical reliability of this account. And I want to explain why people think that. Let's see if we can see. The argument goes like this. If the early Christians stole the body and made up the story they would not have made the women the first witnesses. They would have picked somebody else who would have been more reliable. 
In the Greco-Roman world, women were regarded as gullible and superstitious. In Luke's gospel, it says the apostles actually didn't even believe the women as soon as they came back. It says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. This is Luke 24, verse 10 and 11. They thought they were just making up stuff, gossiping, and they did not believe them. It's later that Peter and John run to the tomb and they say, I want to see for myself. So if it's hard to believe that someone can come back from the dead, it would be even harder to believe the testimony of those considered unreliable. And so the very reason it lacked credibility in the first century is precisely the reason it gives credibility to this story and to this account today. The women were the first eyewitnesses in all four of the gospel accounts because that's exactly what happened. And they didn't make it up. It's because that's what happened. Now verse 8 says, They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. What happened in the resurrection? Sorrow and grief are turned to fear and great joy. It's an interesting way to kind of capture what they were feeling in that moment. Fear and great joy. This idea of maybe shock, astonishment, and then happiness. I was trying to figure out what other experiences give us this sense of fear and great joy. I asked my small group. One guy said, riding a horse, you know, this big, massive beast, he could buck you off at any moment, you could get stomped on and die, and yet here you have all this power at your disposal and, you know, you're riding him. Or bungee jumping, or getting up on a really, really big zip line, or one of the gals said giving birth. It's this combination of danger and amazement. You can't stop yourself from smiling even though there's a small chance you might die in this moment, right? This grief gives way to awe and wonder and rejoicing. And this points to a very simple truth about the good news of the gospel. It fills us with awe and glorious great joy to see Anders' face there. Tears streaming down, his mom and dad overjoyed to see his brother put the towel on him. That's what the gospel does. It transforms broken hearts that are so weighed down by this broken world where all of it just seems to be getting worse all the time. And it says there's hope, there's joy, there's transformation. Come and see the resurrection for a world weighed down by sin and sorrow and suffering, the resurrection beckons us to be amazed. If the woman were excited and happy and amazed at that point, imagine the completely new level of joy that fills them as soon as they see Jesus in the flesh and hear him say, greetings. The word has a double meaning. It's both a greeting, could be like hello, but it also means rejoice, be glad. This is a whole nother level of joy. This is jump up and down, squeal like a baby, tears running down your face, joy. 
No other joy quite like it. And the woman bow down, taking hold of Jesus' feet, and they worship. And I wonder, in that moment, they smell that strong perfume from when he was anointed. And it all comes back to them. Oh, they were anointing him for his burial. This points to the very emerging reality that Jesus is the risen Lord and he is worthy of all of our worship and honor. He is the vindicated Lord. Everything he said was true because God raised him from the dead. The women are told, do not be afraid and go and tell Jesus' brothers and sisters to meet him in Galilee. Now think about that. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, all of his disciples scattered. They turned their back on their Lord in his greatest moment. Maybe John came near, maybe Peter got as close as the outside and then denied him. And yet Jesus doesn't say, tell those scumbags never to come back. That's what some of us would do. What does he say? Tell my brothers, tell my brothers, tell my brothers I'm coming to see them. It's glorious. And there in Galilee, Jesus appears to more than 500. Every single one of them will go to their grave, never backtracking on having seen the resurrected Christ. So what happened in the resurrection? Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father. This account is true. It's verified by eyewitnesses. It's historically reliable. And we know without a shadow of doubt, Jesus is not in the grave, but he's alive and well. Amen? Now, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us this morning? For believers, we know that everything in the Christian life hinges upon the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith, our lives, everything about us is in vain. And yet the opposite is true if Christ has truly been raised from the dead. We see in this roller coaster of emotions that the woman experienced that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything about our lives. Grief finally gives way to gladness. Sorrow transforms to satisfaction. Anguish and agony turn to astonishment. Mourning and misery become marveling. Suffering and sadness turns to satisfied smiles of serenity because of what Christ has done. Heartache becomes happiness in the light and in the life of Christ. And you ask, well, how? How does that happen? How does the tangible reality of the resurrection do that? Because I still feel sad sometimes and my life sometimes is a mess and our world is a mess. Three implications of the resurrection. The first is that death is defeated. All the roads of suffering and sickness and sorrow merge onto the highway of death. All of our suffering ultimately ends up in death. All of our sorrows ultimately end up in death. Death is what keeps us up at night. It's what keeps life insurance salesmen employed. Keeps us going to our cancer screenings and to put on our seatbelts and to exercise. No one wants to die. The Bible calls death a great enemy, the last enemy. 
But in this account, Jesus decisively defeats death once for all. And guess what Jesus is called? Colossians 1.18, he's called the firstborn from the dead. Revelation 1.5, same thing, firstborn from the dead, which means Jesus was the very first one to overcome death decisively. And you may say, well, what about Lazarus? Lazarus came back from the dead only to die again. He had to die twice. But Jesus is the first to overcome death decisively. But to call him the firstborn, like if you have siblings, you say, I'm the firstborn, that means I have other siblings. In the same way, to call Jesus the firstborn from the dead, it means there are others who will follow after him, who will likewise be born again, who will never succumb to death. It means that all those who are in Christ do not need to fear death. You don't need to fear old age or cancer or a sudden heart attack or an undiagnosed illness. Instead, we live with the quiet confidence that death's victory and death's sting is no more. Eternal, everlasting life awaits all of God's people. That is the glorious good news of the resurrection. Second thing, sin is defeated. Death is defeated and then sin is defeated. The Bible tells us all have fallen short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Sin keeps us from God, earns us punishment and condemnation. And we have rightly earned eternal separation from God. But Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection means that God accepted the sacrifice of the perfect lamb of God blameless, spotless, and God, through Jesus, atones for the sins of all those who are in him. And if we believe in Jesus, if we trust in his saving work, we will receive his forgiveness of sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is part of the good news of the resurrection. Death defeated forever. Sin Defeated. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan will say, look at the long list of things they have done. And across the top it will say, paid for by the blood of Christ. Third thing, we have hope and unspeakable joy. Hope and unspeakable joy. I started off the sermon by outlining, by outlining how much brokenness and despair and sadness seems to be present in our world and in so many of our lives. Some of you are experiencing that storm cloud in your soul right now that seems to never lift. There's just this pervasive feeling of bleh. I just feel like, oh, I gotta get off social media because or stop looking at the news. Because every time I look at what's going on, I'm just overcome with the world's falling apart at the seams. There's so much cynicism, so much disappointment, so much anger, so much outrage. What do we do? But the resurrection gives hope. Hope of a future with God and in Christ. Hope that God is at work in all the challenges that we face. The Apostle Peter 
writes in 1 Peter 1, 4, that we are born again to a living hope, not a static hope, not a dead hope, but to a living hope that is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. It means that in Christ Jesus, we have hope of the future and we have hope in our lives right now because God is at work in everything. There's nothing that happens where God looks at it and says, oops, didn't know that was going to happen. He's at work in all of it. And it also means that those who are in Christ, life here in this world is as bad as it will ever get. It only gets better from here. And yet, the opposite is true as well. Those who are without Christ, this life is as good as it will ever get. Oh, if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, please, we beseech you, we urge you, turn to Christ and believe in him. God raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And Romans 8, 11 tells us that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that now dwells within us and gives us life. That's how we can withstand the storms and the sorrows and the suffering of this life. We have resurrection power at work in our bodies, coursing through our veins. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. I have couple of kids, a few more than a couple maybe. My, my youngest ones can't swim all that well yet. And so if I put them in the deep end of the pool, if it's six feet, it's a scary prospect because they will sink and they will die. If I put them in the Pacific Ocean, it's a scary prospect because they will sink and die. And yet, if we do a very simple thing, we, we just put a floaty on them. You know the kind, the new ones, you know, across the front on both arms, clip it into the back, and we put them in the deep end of the pool, what happens then? They don't want to get out. They're just swimming, they're having a blast, they're floating. Why? Because there's an outside power that is holding them up so that they don't drown. And so it is with the Spirit's power at work in our life right now because of the resurrection of Jesus. We have the Spirit's power at work in our hearts, this outside power given to us, upholding us so that we don't drown under the weight of this world. And it tells us, remember what Christ has done. Remember God's working all things together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purposes. Don't forget You're his beloved child. Don't forget, God has defeated sin and Satan and all of your suffering is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory so that when you see Jesus, you will say, it was all worth it. Amen? Amen. We have joy and hope in Christ. The woman's grief and sorrow in a matter of moments went to fear into great joy, and then as they beheld Jesus into even greater heights of joy. And so do you want to be filled with joy this morning? Look no further than the resurrection of Jesus. Come and see the empty tomb. Come and see the historical reliability of this count. Come and see Jesus 
and come and receive the free gift of eternal life by surrendering to him. And as we go from here, may we have the Spirit's power coursing through our veins, filling us with hope and joy so that we can withstand all the storms of life. Let's pray. Father, we praise God that Christ is risen from the dead. Oh, praise God that he is risen indeed. And so cause that truth to land on us with fresh joy and awe so that we would be able to walk now in that new life. And as we sing, fill our hearts afresh. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sermons Podcast from the North Church. For more information about our church or resources to help you deepen your walk with Christ, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com.